Okay. We are going to start chapter 15 of the Tanya. All right. With the above in mind, which creates a problem. Because we need to know what the above is, right? It's hard to have the above in mind when we don't know what the above is. So I'll get back to that. Just keep in mind that we need to know what the above is. We may now understand the text. I hope I have the same translation. Maybe I don't. If I don't, I'll see. Do you have, and then shall ye again discern? Yeah. Yeah, okay, fine. Then shall ye again discern between the righteous man and the wicked man, between him that is serving God and him that serves him not. Okay. Now, What is this? This is a one sentence paragraph. What is this one sentence doing? Does anyone want? It is, a, after all, a textual class. Is, what is this sentence doing? The author of the Tanya obviously wrote this sentence for a reason. What is he trying to tell me with this sentence? More specifically. The whole first sentence. It has a quote in there. Well, that obviously explains something that we want to explain this verse. Oh, that there's something that he's already said that will explain this verse. Now, that would mean that the verse needs explanation, right? So, if we do not see what requires explanation in the verse, then we are not on the same page as the author. Okay? This is very important. Anytime in Torah that somebody offers an explanation of something, a commentary on something, that is because they feel that it, the text does not stand on its own. The text has something about it that needs to be explained. Okay? Otherwise, you're abusing the text. If I want to say some interesting idea, and I go find a quote from the Torah to use in my Shabbos speech, you know, or whatever, I'm abusing the text, right? Because what am I saying is I want to tell you this idea, but so that you will think it's very religious, I find a quote that says what I want to say. Right? That's, that's not how Torah scholarship works. How does Torah scholarship work? Does the text need explanation? Does it need clarification? Does the text have something about it that requires us to have a deeper understanding? And then can I provide that deeper understanding? So before we go into what was said above and how he's going to explain this, this verse, we need to look at this verse and say, why does this verse need explanation at all? It seems pretty simple, right? There's a difference between a righteous person, a wicked person, someone who serves God, someone who doesn't serve God, but what's so hard to understand? So I'm going to throw this out at you. What in this verse, and it, maybe you'll come up with things other than what the Alter Rebbe finds problematic, but what in this verse is problematic? What in this verse requires explanation or clarification? So you have to read the verse a few times to think about it. There's only two what? Well, no, because then it goes on to say, he is serving God and he who serves him not. There's four people mentioned in the verse. What's the difference between what and what? So the righteous person is serving God and the wicked man is not serving Okay, so that's one idea. One idea that we could say is the verse seems to be repetitive. There's a righteous person, a wicked person. That makes sense. There's someone who serves God, doesn't serve God. That makes sense. 
But if you read the verse in Ho'o, it says there's a difference between the righteous and the wicked, the one who serves God and the one who serves him not, implying that serving God and not serving God is not the same thing as being righteous versus being wicked. Now, this is a common question in Scripture, in the Tanakh. In the Hebrew Bible, many books, notably the Latter Prophets and the Book of Psalms, but also you find this in other places as well, they have the issue that it seems to be that the verse says the same thing twice in different words. Right? So you say there's a righteous person, a wicked person, and then you go and say... There's someone who serves God, doesn't serve God. Serving God seems to be just a, a different words for saying being righteous. Not serving God seems to be the same different words for saying being wicked. And so the question is, well, why say the same thing in two different words? Now, one possibility could be you're not actually saying the same thing, right? It could be those are two different ideas. The other possibility is that you could say that it's a rhetorical style. Where is it from? This is a book. This is this is. This is from the prophet Malachi. Rhetorical style means a way you communicate. Okay, so there is a question. When I see in scripture a verse, and the verse says something, and then it says the same thing, what seems to be the same thing in different words, should I assume that that's just rhetorical style? That's just the way the prophet speaks? Or should I assume that those are actually two different ideas? Which one do you think is the correct way of looking at it? Yeah, actually, two different ideas. Anyone disagree? Anyone I think like, we should? Like, I thought it was poetry than like. I feel like everyone compared to me. Like, that's the So, this is a very important lesson in, in generally when studying. You don't have to settle on one answer. Is it correct to say that a prophet in trying to communicate their message will use, use different words to communicate the same idea to get strike the message home, to get people to hear the point? Didn't I just do that when I spoke? I said the same thing using several synonyms so that you would hear me? Okay, so is that perfectly reasonable thing that the prophet is a messenger from Hashem to communicate to the Jewish people something that's important that they might say the same thing in different words? Yeah. Is it also true that there can be deeper truth embedded and that these two different expressions might actually refer to two slightly different ideas and the text can be read in a more nuanced and deeper way? Yeah. And so it's important to understand is that when you read the Tanakh, when you read scripture, you're going to find all of the time that there's these kinds of double expressions. And the simple meaning of the text is the prophet is using rhetorical method, a flourish, to help the people really hear the message. And at the same time, for those people who are more nuanced and sophisticated, the prophet is communicating a more complex, a more nuanced idea. And those two things are happening simultaneously. So some commentators are approaching the text on a more simple level, and some commentators are approaching the text on a more complex level. So if we're approaching this verse on a more complex level, it's a fair question, what exactly is the difference between righteous and wicked versus serving God and not serving God? But if I'm approaching the text on a simple level, that's not a valid question. 
Right? If I'm learning this text with 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 with, with um, you know, I, I don't with, with somebody whether because of age or experience or temperament, just wants to get like what's the key point that the prophet is communicating? The first is very straightforward. There's the way that you're supposed to live. There's the way you're not supposed to live, and the prophet is trying to drive that home. If I'm looking at this text and I'm coming from a more um, mature perspective, a more nuanced perspective, then it's fair to ask, is there more to it? Is the prophet using these two different expressions to get at two different ideas? And if that's my question, the altar says, I have an answer. If I'm reading this text in a more sophisticated way and I'm bothered, why do, what's the difference between righteous and wicked versus serving God and not serving God? Then that's a that's the kind of question that says I have something that can help illuminate that verse on that level of reading, but on the simple level of reading, there's nothing here that needs to be explained. At least that's not an issue that needs to be explained. Is there anything else in this verse that seems to require commentary or explanation? The Jewish people. That, 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 that's context. Like, I mean, you know, if you know, right, the prophet is speaking to the people. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so that, that's a translation problem. Um, because the, the Hebrew doesn't have the word again. Veshavtem. Veshavtem means to go back, um, to return, and the, the the simple meaning of that the simple meaning of that is to revisit the issue, to pay attention. Like when I ask you a question, I sort of go back in the text and look. And and in older English, they used again in that sense also. So this is a problem of you having an older English translating something and so some of the nuance is getting lost. If I were to use a more modern English, um, I would say, um, and I wasn't trying to be too literal to just get the thing across, I would say something like, like, um, you should refocus and see or something like that. That's kind of the meaning there. So I... I once you know that, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't make a big deal. This also is an important lesson that when you're reading something in translation, you have to be sensitive to that. An implication of the text might only be because of how it was translated and not in the original. Yeah. Um, so would another question be why it says "He shall again" um, because this is the first time. But that's what I just answered. Is that again is not really again. Oh. It's like refocus on the issue. That the, the original Hebrew "veshavta" means to 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 kind of refocus to to. Um, kind of pay, pay, pay attention to what you weren't paying attention to before. From the word shav to return, but more in the sense of refocusing. What do you mean? Okay. So what's problematic about that? What needs to be explained there? Yeah, the verse, the, the verse is telling me to discern, to, to separate between things. Well, what, why is that a needed explanation? No, in order to, in order to, in, in order to provide commentary in a Torah source, the, the, the text itself needs to have a problem that needs to be addressed. 
The verse is telling me, discern between these two things. Okay, so I should discern between these two things. I should pay attention. But that's what the verse is telling me to do. Right? In other words, the, 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 the verse is the prophet calling the Jewish people to attention, saying, you need to pay attention between the difference between this thing and that thing. So what, what commentary do you think needs to be added to that? What's not sufficient? What are we discerning? Explain. Well, let's move. Yeah, I, is it why we're discerning in the first place? And then, who's so discerning between the Jewish people? Like, within the Jewish people, it's. Okay. What is the subject of the sermon? Well, the subject of a sermon is a righteous person, a wicked person, someone serves God, and someone doesn't serve God, right? That says in the verse very clearly. Why discern is an interesting question, right? What's the value in the discerning? That's a good question. And I think that's a question, even if you read the verse in the most straightforward manner, like, you know. What allow right, right? How do you make the discerning, right? In other words, if I were to tell you discern between discerning is to make a distinction to, show, to figure out the difference. If I were to say um, I would like you to discern between good schools and bad schools, so you can ask the question reasonably. Well, how do you do that? Like the good schools don't have a sign saying we're a good school, and the bad schools have a sign saying we're a bad school. Then it's like very simple, right? How do you make that distinction? How do you draw that line? So there's, there's two questions here. Why do we draw the line and how do we draw the line? Okay. What else? So we already have three questions on this verse. Right? What's the difference between the second pair, serving God and not serving God, versus the first pair? Why is it important to make this distinction? And how do you make this distinction? Any other questions? I want to revisit the question of why you make a distinction. And I want to split that into two questions. When you ask why, you can be asking what positive thing does it accomplish? So if I walk into the store and you say, why am I going to the store? And I say to get milk, right? What I'm answering is what is the positive thing that walking to the store accomplishes? It allows me to buy the milk. That make sense? It also, there's another thing, which is, if I'm walking to store to buy milk, what does it imply about how much milk I currently have at my home or wherever? I don't have any or I don't have enough, right? Or someone else doesn't have enough. Because if having milk is a good thing, but it's already been taken care of, is there a need to walk to the store to get more milk? No. So there's this other notion of why, which is I'm not asking you what is the positive benefit, but I'm asking you what is the lack? What is the... What is the need for it? Okay. Those are just two slightly different things. So I can ask the question of why is it important to discern something? And then I can ask a different question. Why do they need to be differentiated as in the difference between them obvious? I'm going to give you an example. It would be strange if there was a verse that says, differentiate between people and rocks. Why would that be a strange thing for the verse to differentiate, to differentiate between? 
It's obvious. We all understand the value of knowing the difference between people and rocks, right? It'd be weird if like you sat down next to a rock and tried to like have a therapy session with a rock and have it like process your feelings with you. Like, it, that, that would be weird, right? And if you treat the person next to you like a rock and you just move them around to like keep your door open, that would be also not just weird, but probably abusive, right? What? So it's obviously good to be able to distinguish between rocks and people, but it's also pretty obvious to almost all human beings that rocks and people are two different things. So there's no need for the prophet to instruct you differentiate between people and rocks, right? If you're telling us, if, if the prophet is telling us it's important to differentiate between these two things, that means A, there has to be some value in seeing the difference, but B, it also has to be that the difference is not Obvious that there's a possibility, a genuine possibility of conflating into, of not seeing the difference. Would it be, if one thing has two levels, then you emphasize that there's a difference between the two because, there's a, because, because you're unsure. If, right, right. So if you want to take one category and divide it into two, that would, that would, that would be an important reason to say that you want to differentiate the two because on some level they're the same, but in some other aspect they're very different. Okay. So, wait, so, so if I think about it now, I have a few questions. Number one is, um, what benefit do we gain by discerning between righteous, wicked, serving God, not serving God? Second question is, why are these distinctions not so obvious that they have to be pointed out to us? Third question is, how do you make the distinction? And the fourth question is, What's the difference between the second set, serving God and not serving God, as opposed to the first set, righteous and wicked? So this verse, and that's only if you read the verse in a more sophisticated way and, and, and ignore the fact that it can be read more simply as just a rhetorical flourish. Now, with those four questions in mind, and there may be more questions, but we'll just suffice with those, do we have things that require explanation in this verse? Yeah? Okay, so now, once we see that, the Alter Rebbe is justified in taking an idea and trying to show us how that idea explains the verse, because the verse needs explanation. But if the verse stands on its own, it's understood on its own, then imposing your ideas onto it is, is abusing the verse. It's not explaining the verse. Okay, keep that in mind in your own studies also. If you really like an idea and you want the verse to say it, ask yourself, does the verse need to be saying that, or could the verse on its own be saying what it sounds like it's saying. Right? This is a problem that everybody faces when they're learning. Learning learning and explaining versus imposing our own ideas. Okay. Now, what is the above idea? What is the above idea? So, the above idea is that, and I'm going to start with the general thing, is that, I mentioned this yesterday, the Alter Rebbe has made a distinction between the Tzaddik and the Benini. And again, I'm going to use the Hebrew because these are technical terms. Yeah. I just wanted to say that yesterday I went to the Benini and I saw the You saw the what? The Benini. Yeah. Yeah. And now you're like, I want one! <laughs> Okay. So the the so there's this discussion of the tzaddik and the benini, and 
this idea of differentiating between the tzaddik and the benini is something that was really the subject of previous chapters. And he's going to use our understanding of that distinction to help explain some, maybe not all, these questions that we've come up with on this verse. So I want to just first go back and, and elaborate a little more on what's already been discussed about a tzaddik and a benini, and then we can go forward in the text. I want to first start with what do a tzaddik and a benini have in common? I'm going to go with simple things, and then we can go to more, more nuanced things. A tzaddik never sins. A benini never sins. Now, the op, this word never is a very important word. Okay, when we say never regarding a human being, is never a kind of absolute objective statement. If I say, I would never do X, is that, an, is, that, is that objectively the case that I will never do X no matter how far the future goes and how much circumstances change? No, that, that, that's ridiculous. So what would it mean in a reasonable way to say a person would never do something? Well, no, because if I say it's in reasonable circumstances, then then it means I then then I then I think that never is maybe too strong. I say I I I, I don't, or I usually won't, or I probably won't. But unusual circumstances, extreme circumstances happen. Never, never is like you haven't, you won't, and you won't. You claim nothing. Right, but how could a human being ever say that about themselves? How could that ever be true about a person? Right now, that's not something that would ever. Okay. Right. I, I think what we have to differentiate is there's a difference between external reality and internal reality. In external reality, if the circumstances change and I would do something and there's other circumstances, then I can't say I would never do it. But I can say I would never do it if I presuppose that my internal circumstances don't change. In other words, in the state I am now, no matter what would happen in the external circumstances, I would never do that. So I'll give you an example. Here's something I would never do. I would never abandon my children. Now, what does that mean? Now, can I say, am I saying a matter of prophecy that, that there will never come a point, God forbid, where something radical changes in my own experience of self? And I'm not making a statement of prophecy. I'm not making a statement about the future. I'm making a statement about the present. The statement is, my sense of my relationship with my children is such that even in the most extreme circumstances that I could fathom occurring, I could never see myself abandoning my children. Okay? okay? So what's very important is that when we're talking about a tzaddik or we're talking about a benini, we're talking about a rasha, and we're making these kinds of absolute statements or very, very rigid definitional statements, we're talking about states of being. We're not talking about prophecies about the future. Is anyone unclear on that point? Because that's going to be very important just in general learning, Tanya, and in as we go forward in this chapter especially. Okay. So would someone volunteer something other than the obviously cliche example I used about something that they would never do? You would never jump off a bridge. Really? You sure? What if... What? If I'm really being chased, no, but so in other words, you could, could you conceive of an extreme circumstance that if that occurred right now, you would then change, you'd be willing to jump off a bridge. 
Yeah, right? Like, I mean, if, if you were to be tortured to death or jump to your death, I mean, you might have baptized. I'd actually be willing to jump off the bridge, right? So it's, it's not really, so you see the difference between, like, that's something, in other words, in other words even keeping your current mental, mental way of relating to yourself as it is now, the reason you wouldn't jump off a bridge is because there's nothing that warrants jumping off a bridge. But there are conceivably things that, right? Whereas I, and I don't mean to say it's different between you and me, it's just the difference in examples, I cannot conceive of anything that would warrant abandoning my children. Like even the most extreme circumstances. Including the cross. Include like, like like if it would you know what I mean this is why I mean this is gets an extreme thing but why is it that it's so torturous for a parent who has two children and they both need things that are not mutually compatible like one child needs one thing one child needs the other thing and they really need them truly truly need them and you can't provide both you can only provide one why does that tear the parent apart because they can't really abandon either of them. So what's something you could say, like, I would I'd never, it doesn't have, but, but jumping off a bridge is like, there's no need to jump off a bridge, but it would come up with a good enough need. Most of us would jump off a bridge, actually. I want to use a different example. I want you to come up with a different example. Okay, that might be. Maybe. Maybe. No, I want to, I want to, I want to. You would if someone was threatening your life. So, so. Well, your body doesn't like I think that though, and like, I would have been really, I would have been really, Right, but that's, we're talking about her, we're not talking about people, other people. So, the, the killing people, I think, is a very interesting thing because, I mean, you don't know for sure about yourself until you're in that situation, but. It's definitely true that there are people, even though they feel like it's probably the right thing to do to kill someone, say in self-defense, they just can never bring themselves to do it. That some people have that kind of mental block that they can't bring themselves to do it. And maybe you're correct in your assessment. You're not, I don't know, but, but that's a reasonable plausibility. The breaking the bone thing, I'm a little bit more skeptical about, and I'm not saying you're wrong, but because one of the things that I want you to see is that most things that involve physical pain and harm, if you make the situation extreme enough, people, will be willing to do them to avoid the other harmful thing. It's when things take on a kind of spiritual, moral... Right. Those, were, those are the things where that never really comes in. It's, it's, very interesting that, it's very interesting that the real strong psychological inhibition, I cannot do this, is usually tied to, like a belief or is usually tied to, to, yeah, to belief or to value or to identity and not generally tied to physical pain and suffering. Um, and I think it's important not, if we want to understand what we're talking about, we say that the Bainini would never do something, or the Tzaddik would never do something, or a person would never do something, is therefore it comes through that kind of development of that part of ourselves. The more a person has a clearer sense of a belief or a value or uh, an identity or something in that space, these, these, these sense of I would never, I could never become more and more genuine and more and more real. Okay, um, whereas a lot of things that we can never see ourselves doing is often because we just don't feel the need to because Baruch Hashem, we're not in that kind of duress. Um, you know, the people that jump out of burning buildings we could never imagine jumping out of a burning building, but when it's, there's literally a blazing fire to your back, right, 
it's not that your sense of value and who you are has to have undergone a change. It's just the external experience has changed. And I want to draw that distinction, make it very clear, because mm -hmm. we're talking about changing and, and growing in that internal sense. Is there like a, a reason to that? Just the way that, like why is that first like a belief for like a like a spiritual? Um, because we human beings are created as primarily. Um, using the Rambam's language, rational beings, the language of the Chumash in the image of God. Um, other ways of putting it is, is that we're, we're primarily mental or psychological beings. Um, and, and therefore, something has to register on that level to really define and shape us. Um, and that's also why we find that when we, when we just kind of live material lives, I'm not even getting to a religious thing, without having, being able to kind of cr create or believe some kind of psychological meaning for that, we actually start to, to suffer. And conversely, people can actually thrive as people under very adverse physical circumstances when they have a kind of a rich mental life. And that's the kind of nature of the creature we are. I mean, now, again, that's one of the explanations of being created in the image of God. Um, so when we're talking about, in the time you're saying that the Bainini could never do this, it's not a statement of prophecy. It's a description of, a, of, of an internal mental state, of a way of relating to and how they view the God and connection with God. And, and the same thing with the Rush, with the Tzaddik. They both have this kind of, I could never do this. So that's what makes them the same. What makes them different, though? The, what makes the Bainani different from the Tzaddik? They both could never sin because of this kind of mental inhibition. Maybe. I want to get to that next because that's going to be kind of the, part of the subject of, of this chapter. Of how much is struggle part of a Bainani? How much is that an admirable thing? If it's an admirable thing, what kind of struggle? Right. That's, that's what we're going to end up going to. And because that's, that's a complexity that arises from, from the more fundamental distinction, which is always true. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's, yeah okay, so what does that mean without that language? Like, if you wanted to describe yeah, to that what that means, don't say animal soul and don't say godly soul. Tell me what it's like. Like, if I say, like, I have a, I have a very absolute inhibition, psychologically, I cannot bring myself to do something, I know what that means. Like, we all have a sense of what that means. And in that, the tzaddik and the bainini are the same. They both have this strong psychological inhibition that doesn't allow them to say, fine. I think that for bainini is an option, and he'll never do it, and for tzaddik, it's not an option. But if it's an option, then he doesn't have that inhibition, and he can't say never. Something that's an option, it becomes a matter of external circumstance, how convenient it is. Like, I would you say most people, the breaking your bones thing is like that. I would never do it under normal circumstances, but like, you know, what's the alternative? If the alternative is worse, then maybe I would. No. Oh. Sins. No, that's what I said yesterday, that we all can relate to being a Bainian in certain respects. But that's not the difference between the Bainian and the Tzadik. What do you mean they don't see all the sense? Maybe, but that's, the Tanya doesn't really deal with accidental sinning as a general rule. Because, because accidental sinning is, 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 is not something that's at least on the surface in your direct control. And the Tanya is a book about your own kind of self-governance and your growth. So it doesn't at least overtly do talk about it. Is the term for he will never sit even accurate? Okay, explain. 
me, when you said yesterday, it's not like, if I'm saying, when you will say no, you will never do things. I don't have to, not the possibility to do it, but like, in your realm, I don't know. It's like, yeah, it's in your what? You had in, a, your realm. in your realm. Like, it's still in a reality for you. No, it's also a different internal reality, right. but it's but there's an internal way of relating to things. Let me give you an example. Right? I would never abandon my children. Okay, that that's a statement I can say. We all understand what that means, right? If I were to say, um, I would never, I would never decide to go on a sand-only diet, where all you eat is sand. I would never do that. Why, why did you laugh? It's not in the realm of human things that people like do. Oh, so so the question is, what we mean by an option? There's there's a way in which something there's a something where something registers to you as if you want to say it's an option or it's in your realm, but it's something that you have some kind of um, attachment to. It's something that resonates with you. It's something that speaks to you. Right? Something that you could experience desire for, okay? And then there's things where there's, there, it's, it's, it's categorically outside of your realm. It's not part of your lived experience, okay? Um, have you ever seen, have you ever seen a, um, a snail or a slug? Yeah. Okay. Everybody's different. I get nauseous when I see them. I have no problem killing bugs and whatever, but if there's like a snail or a slug, like even stepping on it makes me want to vomit. Yes, like I feel like, like I can't. Okay, it's my own personal mishigas. Okay, like you know, a spider, fine, but it's my own personal thing. What? Cockro cockroach, I can bring myself to do it. I also, bleh, but like not like snails and slugs. So just bleh. I hate those. Now, okay. So now, right? Okay. Now the thing is, there are, there are people who actually eat these things and think that they are a delicacy. Okay. So when I say I would never eat a slug, I'm not talking about religious reasons to have kosher food. I say I would never eat a slug. Is that never the same I would never as I would never abandon my children? It's a different kind of thing. Before that, I would never abandon my children because I have this kind of strong inhibition against doing it. Right? But like there could be like like people people like like sometimes the cost of like staying for your children doing things is very, very high and people will do it anyway, but there is this there is it's a different kind of thing. Whereas within me there's nothing that even even makes it, as you maybe said, an option or a possibility. It's outside of my realm of experience to even. So, like, abandoning your children, that's like a reality you can't even imagine. Like, you can't even imagine what that would be like. Yeah. Like, you can't even imagine what that would look like. Or eating a slug, like, you could picture it and, like, it makes you shudder. Right. Like, I, I could imagine. I could imagine. I mean, I have a imagine. I can imagine, you know, and I've seen enough movies and read enough books about people that are in very, very extreme circumstances and, like, like they're faced with the choice of abandoning children, you know, in, in some way, sense, or another. Like, I, you don't even have to read books. I happen to know somebody who had a child who had brain cancer and what it meant not to abandon their children and spent two years in and out of hospitals. And that means that, 
you know, both the, 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 the father and the mother. It means not spending time with their other children. It meant no job. It meant no income. It meant um, the, 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 the quality of the marriage suffered. I mean, there's a lot of things. And I mean, and the child was terminally ill. The chances the child was going to recover were pretty remote. And, you know, being there for the child on the off chance that they could get proper medical care that would save the child, which didn't end up happening, he passed away. And being there to emotionally support the child had a huge cost. And yet they, could, they couldn't bring themselves to just, like, walk away and let someone else take care of them. Okay? So I can imagine that. But you can feel the, well, I'll use this word, there's an inner tension there. There's something, there's something that needs to get you to stay. It's like, but the slug, it's like... <laughs> it's like, I would never fly I just go to the main, like, if I even yeah. So, the, the, in other words, the the knees I would never sin is that the inhibition against it, the violation of what's important to me is so great I could just never allow myself to to, to make that choice. That tzaddiks would never sin is sinning is like eating a slug. In other words, what I don't, and I don't want to think of these as better and worse. It's very important. I just want to think of them as qualitatively different. There are things in our life we would never do because they're just so outside of our realm of like, it, it, it has no attachment, has no pull, it's repulsive, it's abhorrent. Not in its cost, and what it is. And this has to do with a very fundamental, this has to do with the fundamental difference in how a tzaddik relates to God and how a bainani relates to God. A tzaddik, relates to God as the most important thing in their life. A bainani relates to God as the most important thing in their life. How does a tzaddik relate to God? The only. the only important thing in their life. So if you present somebody with something which is ungodly, which is really the tiniest definition of sin. Sin does not actually have to be technically forbidden. Sin just means anything that is ungodly. Because the idea is that if you're either moving closer to God or away from God, God is not neutral. So if you present something ungodly to the bainani, that's part of, as you put it, the Bainini's realm, or maybe that's an option for the Bainini, but the question is, what's the cost? The cost is compromising my connection to God, and that's an intolerable cost. That's a cost I'm unwilling to bear. And so I would never do it. That would be a Bainini. But just one second. Whereas a tzaddik, a tzaddik is somebody, if there's nothing godly, there's nothing, there's nothing appealing about it to begin with. There's nothing that draws them to begin with. In fact, it's repulsive to them. So they need to come on to this notion of inhibition under values. Okay. I don't know. Extreme, I think, is a question about. Um, I'm saying it's either godly or it's repulsive. That's right. That's what you're not asking. Oh, you mean that? Yeah. Oh, in that sense. Yeah, yeah. It's extreme. It's either godly or it's repulsive. There's nothing. There's no in between. Mm-hmm. The 
There's, yeah, so. so, so So the thing is, the thing is, the notion of things being godly. Um, is not an easy topic. And the reason for that is um, three things. One, anytime you talk about God, that creates its whole level of problems because God is ethereal, amorphous, it's hard to know exactly what we mean. Number two, um, we're, trying to we're trying to talk about something, and, and when you talk about something, um, you have to like kind of set rules as to what level that you're talking about. I'll give you an example. Um, if I were to say that this is red, would you agree with me? Right. So you're ready. You're like saying, "Well, right. but I'm going to even make a different argument." Like before, the the inside of the book is not. There's no red there at all. Right. It's not even more like like. So if someone says it's red, do I agree with them? Do I disagree with them? Are you talking about the overall appearance when you just kind of look at it from the outside? Are you looking at it, the actual colors present on the cover? You're talking about the totality of the thing, right? You can even make an argument that thinking of it in terms of color is wrong because it should be viewed primarily as a holy book and holiness is, right? You know, like, like the minute you start talking about something and you're not clear about what level of its reality you're dealing with, you, you set yourself up for miscommunication, right? In other words, this is this is red in some sense, and it's godly in some sense. But the senses in which it's red, and the sense in which it's godly, is not even operative. It's like, well, this part is red, and this part is godly. That's silly. Um, and then the third thing is, so, so so there's that issue. And then the third thing is, and this is a Hasidic idea is, as you were pointing out, there's nothing devoid of godliness. Godliness is present in everything. So then, how can you make an argument that something is not godly? You put all those complexities together. You, you end up with a, a very serious discussion you need to have as to what do we mean that something is or isn't godly and the way we use those definitions in one context might not carry over in another context. Okay. I'm going to sidestep all of that complexity of just bringing it up and just deal with the answer to the tzaddik. Okay. For the tzaddik, the question is the, the question is the psychological attachment to something. Okay. I am psychologically attached to my children. I'm also psychologically attached to lasagna. This is just like a thing. What? That barely qualifies as lasagna. Um, yeah. okay. It barely qualifies as lasagna. Now, um, In order for, now, why am I psychologically attached to my children? That probably has something to do with, you know, human nature and values and things like that. Why am I attached, why am I psychologically attached to lasagna? That's a combination of, you know, the pleasure of the sensation coupled with nostalgia, right? So there's psychological attachment in both senses, but they're two different reasons, right? It's not innate human nature to have psychological attachment to eating specific foods. Um, some people do, some people don't. I know people just like, don't have like they don't have favorite foods. I know people they they're hungry, they eat, they're like they enjoy the food and then they move on. Like they, they didn't 
And then there are people that like have like, they feel a lot of nostalgia, they get really into how the experience of eating the food. And there's some people just like, that, they don't register that. There are people like poetry and there are people, it was right over there, same thing. Like there's a variety of human experiences. You know, being attachment to one's children is probably more fundamental to human nature. Okay, so there's different kinds of attachments and things. Um, the tzaddik is a person that the only thing, the only metric they use to feel drawn to something or repulsed by something, to appreciate something or, 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 or be disturbed by something is how much and in what way does this thing genuinely, this thing, this activity, genuinely bring them closer to God? So it's not an objective statement, is God present. The question is, does this bring me closer to God or not? This is, the, this is not tzaddik ask. This is how tzaddik experiences life. So the tzaddik goes to a museum. What, what, and a tzaddik could go to the museum. There's no reason why tzaddik couldn't go to a museum. What portraits would the tzaddik be drawn to? What? Why? Why landscapes? Why not other things? world nature is not necessarily bringing the person closer to God. There's a Mishnah which says that when someone is engrossed in Torah study and they stop to admire nature, then they're cutting themselves off from God. So, if you, if you, um, have you ever been to a museum and you saw something and it made you think about something in a certain way that ever happened? Just, oh, there's a pretty picture? No, like you saw me. Oh, I, I, I never thought about things that way, or I didn't, right? Right? So if, if a tzaddik goes to a museum and he's looking at the portraits, the ones that he stops and gazes at are the ones that give him a new insight into God and how to relate to God. In as much as that's also a way to bring them closer to God. And of course, by the way, are all tzaddikim the same in types of temperament and personality? No. So are all tzaddikim drawn to the exact same thing? Only in the abstract, but not in the practice. So one tzaddik could walk through the museum and see this painting and be struck by it because there's something about that painting that gives them a new insight, a new perspective in what it means to relate to God, what it means to serve God. And the painting becomes a medium through which they're having that awareness and they're transfixed and they reflect and they ponder and it was a very powerful thing. And the other side, I could just see that just like a, it's just, what's the point? It's just someone painted a picture. No, it wouldn't. It could be, it could be the Louvre. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, Maybe, but ask yourself this. How often are you aware of your fundamental psychological attachments as you navigate life? Or you tend to be more focused on the specific thing you're doing? So if it's sad, it involves itself in deep introspection, then maybe they figure that out. Right? Um, to give you an illustration, this is, not a, this is not a tzaddik, but this illustrates the idea of a psychological attachment. Um, I had a friend. I know it was very nice while it lasted. I've been mourning the loss. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, I had a friend because we, we were friends at an earlier point in life, and then our lives have since gone in different directions, and we weren't that close that we kept in touch with each other. Um, and he had a very rich uncle. 
And he was trying to explain to me once the difference between a real businessman and a regular person. And he, so he's told me examples. Uncle's a businessman. He says, for example, that one time his uncle went on a cruise with his aunt. They took a cruise together they were in their 60s, whatever. They took a cruise together. So when his uncle came back, he asked his uncle, how was, how was your vacation? And his uncle responded, my wife had a vacation. I'm considering buying a cruise ship. <laughs> in other words, like his only way of relating to everything was, should I invest or should I not invest? He's on a cruise, and the only thing he can do is see it through the lens of, is this a worthwhile investment? Right? Now, that's, that's not a tzaddik, but that's, that's the kind of like, the only thing that registers, the only parameter you use to na that navigates your experience of reality. Now, of course, some people might see it as a genuine investment, get very interested. Some people might dismiss it as a uh, stupid investment. Right? So, so uh, some tzaddik might see a tremendous amount of godliness in a particular thing or activity, and some tzaddik might not. And so some tzaddik might really invest in it, and some tzaddik might be repulsed by it. But because it's the only thing that resonates with them is the being closer to God and how that thing plays that role, that's the only thing they're drawn to, and that's and when that, that that is absent, at least in their subjective experience, then they're repulsed by that thing. But if you're if you're not a tzaddik, as important as your connection to Hashem is with you, you're still drawn and feel attachment to other things. It's just the importance of the attachment to Hashem creates this deep inhibition about compromising that connection for any other thing. So there's qualitatively a very different kind of relationship. Right? I would never abandon my children. I still like lasagna which creates a problem when there's only so much lasagna left and my children want some, right? And since it's not full-fledged abandonment if I eat all the lasagna myself, it's like an open question, right? Now, if it was clear that I was compromising, you know, being my children's father, then I obviously would let them have the lasagna, right? Like, in a weird kind of way, like, if, there, there's, if we're all starving to death, it'd be easier to let them eat the lasagna because, like, not letting them eat the lasagna would be, like, genuinely abandoning them. But if, like... There's only a little bit left and like, you know, they already had dinner, so they don't really need it. Then, you know, maybe I can just like set them aside. And, right? So the Bainini has this in internal tension, even though Hashem is the most important thing to them, that a tzaddik fundamentally lacks. And that has to do again with the godly soul animal soul relationship in the in the in the in the in the, in the tzaddik. The godly soul has succeeded in changing in a genuine way the animal soul. In the Bainani, the godly soul has not really succeeded in changing the animal soul. It's simply found a way to take charge, to be the dominant force in the person's life. And so that difference is a very big difference. And that's the difference that was explored in these previous chapters. It's a very experiential difference. It's not just a practical difference. In fact, from the outside, is it easy to tell the difference between a tzaddik and a bainanite. No. no. So you wouldn't need to explain like, the difference between you, you, you see the and a tzaddik. No, the opposite. From the outside, it's not easy to tell the difference. And the inside, from the inside, once you start feeling that kind of tension, that I, I feel drawn to something which is clearly not godly. It's not bringing me closer to Hashem. And at the same time, Hashem is the most important thing to me. If you have those kinds of experiences, then you're clearly not a tzaddik. You're clearly in the Bainani category. If on the outside they look similar, how, how do you know something? You don't. Then how do you, like, for some people get the label of tzaddik? Like, the red is 
So, um, let me ask you a different question. How do you know anything you haven't directly experienced yourself? And yet, do you still navigate the world with certainty about things you haven't directly experienced? Like, you don't, you haven't directly experienced that there was my note before you came here and you still got in the plane planning and coming here, right? And you were pretty certain there was going to be a program that we even got here, right? So you do navigate the world with a sense of certainty about things you haven't directly experienced, right? So you have some way of doing that, right? Okay. And despite the fact that it's possible that that way is flawed, it's still reliable enough for you to live your life based on? Okay. So then you would have to say that there must be something like that with tzaddik and prophet and rev and all these types of things that, that even though I don't have direct experience of anybody else's internal states, there must be some way I can reliably navigate that when that's important to make through my life decisions. And there may not even be just one way to do that, right? But what I want you to see, and this is why I'm kind of sidestepping the question, is instead of making the question about the subject of tzaddik or the subject of a rebbe or the subject of a prophet or the subject of a sage, I want you to think about it as a general problem that exists in any human being navigating the world. And if you take the fact that it may genuinely be relevant for me to know that this is a holy person, the same way it's genuinely relevant for me to know is there a program there when I'm going there or not, then you will probably figure out within yourself a reliable mechanisms for yourself to navigate that question. Sometimes Jewish law sets standards for things when there's a Jewish legal question, such as there is a mitzvah to obey a prophet when the prophet directly commands you to do something under God's authority, and then you would need a halachic standard for verifying prophecy. But outside of that very limited case, it really becomes a personal matter. How do we all navigate the uncertainty of the things we have to experience and the need to be certain about the things that we're deciding moving forward in life? And if you make it a subset of that thing and allow yourself the room to grow in that, you'll, you'll kind of, for some, maybe not get an answer you can articulate as like a five-step process that you use, but something that where you can have confidence in your own decision-making. And if you have that operating on a communal level, then you have a communal agreement about someone being a tzaddik or being a this or being a that. I think that's the better way to think about it than me setting to you, like, these are the objective standards you should use, because then, in a certain sense, you're just offloading your uncertainty onto me, and then we can then ask the question, well, what makes you trust me? After all, how do you know that I'm telling you the truth? Okay. You have to kind of trust yourself, in a certain sense. All right. Okay, so the tzaddik is somebody who has a kind of inner consistency within themselves, right? The only thing that is important to them is Hashem, right? Whereas the Benini has an internal tension. The most important thing to them is Hashem, but other things to various degrees are also important. So when it comes to, in practice, what's most important, obviously, you know, as much as the person is being... Um, thoughtful and rational, mature about things is obviously going to obviously win out in all cases, but there is an underlying tension that needs to be navigated and dealt with. Okay? And the Alter discusses different, different forms and levels that can take. So taking get that in mind, we now have um, an idea that we can use to examine and explain the verse and maybe address some of the questions we came up with in this verse. Maybe not all of them, we'll see. Good?
The difference between one who is serving God and a righteous man, tzaddik, is that one who is serving Ovid is the active present. One who is engaged in active service, namely the struggle against his evil nature and effort to gain mastery over it and to banish it from the small city. That term small city is a metaphoric description of the body. The idea is, is that, as I said yesterday, the soul is what makes you what you are. So if you have two souls in one body, the analogy that the Altarba uses in the Tanya is like two kings waging a war over a, over a small city. Um, and I want to just stop and explain that metaphor a little bit. What do kings want? This is hard because we're not kings. We don't live in societies with kings unless you're from like Saudi Arabia or Thailand. I'm sorry, England doesn't count for this purposes. What? I, I know, but you'll see why soon. England especially doesn't count. England hasn't counted for a long time, by the way, in this regard. Um, what does a king want? No. Control. No, so it's not power and it's not control. What? No, so the analogy that's used is that what a king wants is loyalty and fealty. Okay, now, just for little historical purposes, England has a very interesting monarchy. It's had a very interesting monarchy for the past few hundred years. The only reason why England has a monarchy nowadays is because... What? No, no, I'm not talking about modern. I'm not talking right now. No, I'm not talking about. I'm not. I'm not talking about like why it's not gotten rid of nowadays. That, that's a separate question. I mean, how did it survive? And and, the, and, and that, because there's actually a very big difference. Because like if you were to go, if you were to go back, like say to the to like for instance the American Revolution, like it's very interesting. The American Revolution was predicated on the English notion of the king, and the basic idea was is that as much as the king is the king, we are still. Um, on some level, our own private pe person. And there's a kind of a negotiation between the king and the people that grew out from the negotiation between the king and the monarch, uh, the king and the nobility. So in, 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 in England, um, this goes back for several hundred years, um, and those of you know anything about the American Revolution, there's a notion that the king cannot tax the people. Right? Who gets to decide how much money the king can? The king, the king can't decide. The king gets to collect taxes based on how much the people agree to tax. This is originally the nobility have to agree on how much they're willing to be taxed, and then eventually extend to people at large. The idea of no taxation without representation. The idea is that the king is not truly, truly everybody's loyal and fealty to the king, and they owe the king everything. That that notion of kingship just England got rid of a long time ago, hundreds of years ago. Um, there's a Magna Carta, and outline what's the king's rights, and I give a constitution. But if you look at other kingdoms, so like, for instance, let's like say a Saudi Arabia. What's the basic idea in Saudi Arabia as a kingship? So it, it, it's a little bit different because, and I will illustrate this with an interesting thing that I only thought existed like as a matter of like in Hasidus as an analogy and as a theory. Um, it's like a nice like idealization, but it turns out it, it actually somewhat exists in Saudi Arabia also. If you have a problem, in Saudi Arabia, I don't care what your problem is, you can get an audience with the local governor. The governor in Saudi Arabia is the personal representative of the king. So let's say you're fighting with your neighbor over like they want to like expand their, I don't know, they want to expand their porch and you feel like it like ruined the property value. 
can you imagine like going to the president of the United States or the prime minister of whatever country you're from and like, or getting their personal representative to hear the issue? Like that sounds silly, right? But in Saudi Arabia, if you want, like it's once a week, you line up, anybody with any grievance at all, and there's an audience and the governor just one person after the other, you, and if the governor thinks that you want to take, intervene in that matter and, and address the issue, they'll do so as a representative of the king. What's the idea? Is that these people are whose people? And therefore the king has a personal interest in the well-being and individual um, ongoings of every single one of his subjects. And everything that goes on with them is really the king's personal issue because they are his people. This notion of absolute loyalty and fealty. And that also corresponds to the other side is that if you go against the king, what is the consequence for that? Death. So there's this kind of like, yeah, death. Like very, very dead. Like, 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 like sword beheading dead. No, so this notion of kingship is that there's this level of fealty, this level of loyalty, this level of absolute commitment and belonging that power and control become a non-issue. Power and control is when that is lacking. So when Frechzidus describes the notion of kingship, it's contrasted against control and power. If you're a loyal subject, the king doesn't need to control you because you're so devoted. If the king has to control you and exert power over you, then what does that mean? You're not a loyal subject, and in that sense, he's no longer really But why do they kill the king? Why is the punishment death? Um, the simple answer um, is that human beings have this phenomenal ability to act outside of what they know to be true. So you see this in societies where there's kind of an absolute monarchy and where the, even the person who rebelled against the king still feels tremendously guilty that they rebelled against their sovereign. Um, because on some level it's like deeply ingrained, like I really shouldn't be doing this. Kind of the way like when a person sins, they feel really bad that they shouldn't be doing it, they do it anyway. The person who like ideologically thinks there's nothing wrong with rebelling against the king doesn't really feel like they're rebelling against the king. They feel like, who, who, who made you in charge? And if you have enough people like that, then the monarchy ends. Okay, and we live in a society where we don't have that for the most part. So this analogy is very important, okay? Um, when you live your life, would you like it that you have to control your body? Or would you like your body to instinctively involve itself and do the things that are important to you? Which one? Right. I would not, I would not like, I mean, there's times that, like, this is a silly example, but it illustrates, it illustrates the point. Um, Hasidic men go to mikvah on a regular basis, usually every day, if possible. Um, men's mikvahs, by the way, are very different than women's mikvahs. There's like a whole locker room, and it's like it's a whole different experience. Um, yes, and they're not always so clean, and the temperatures can be, you know, depending on, you know. So, when the Hasidic community is wealthier and there's more people, so sometimes there's like three or four different mikvahs with different temperatures, and you can pick the one you want. But sometimes you've got like a very small community, and not many people use the mikvah. And, Sometimes the mikvah isn't heated. Sometimes it's the winter and it's not heated. And um, so like you go and then you put your foot in the water's like ice cold and you're like, okay, I need to go into the mikvah. And then you actually feel like you want to go into the mikvah and the body's like, I'm not going in the mikvah. And now you have to like actually use control to get your body to do something, right? But that's not how we want to live our lives, right? We want to live our lives that when something is important to us or meaningful to us, or, right, that we, our body just gets involved in whatever is the appropriate way, right? That makes sense? Yeah. Okay. 
So does the soul want to be the dictator of the body or the king of the body? King. Do you understand the analogy of king? The wants the body to have a certain sensitivity and loyalty and fealty to the soul, to be on board with whatever is important to the soul, that it just flows with the soul, not that the soul has to actively control everything. Yeah. Fealty is a sense, which we, we don't have in modern societies, that you, your whole life centers around your loyalty and obligations to your king or queen, or you know, in a more feudal society, to your lord and the lord to the king or whatever. Um, we, with the whole we're all created equal thing, that's a rebellion against that idea. <laughs> we're all equal. I don't owe you anything unless you do something for me kind of thing. Which probably is a you know, more equitable way of running a society, but it's not a good analogy for many things in, in Hasidus. And also, that's one of the reasons why we talk about God being king. Right? The idea is that we should, God shouldn't have to like um, coerce us into behaving properly. We should feel a sense that the only thing that's really important to us in our life is meeting our obligations so to God. Like God is forcing you there because he's saying he's not king. That's right. When we talk about crowning Hashem king on Rosh Hashanah, that's what you're dealing with. Right. Yeah. Okay, so now, so how does the godly soul want the body to be? The godly soul wants that when you wake up in the morning, your body gets energized and excited because there's an awareness that there's mitzvahs to do. What does your animal soul want? Okay, let's without the sleeping. There's the sleep, but let's 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 make the contrast equal. Right, you get excited because there's fun things to do. Right? Okay. Um, have you ever noticed that like there's things that you um, your mind kind of goes back to thinking about all the time? Like, um, there's something really exciting that you're anticipating happening, a trip, a vacation, uh, a family event, a book you want to read, whatever. And so, like, your mind just keeps going back to imagining it, thinking about it, right? Without you even trying. So who is your brain loyal to? Your animal soul or your godly soul? Because if your brain was really had this fealty and loyalty to the godly soul, then where would your mind naturally just fall back to? Not even mitzvahs, actually. Mitzvahs are things to do with your body. God. The beauty of God, the greatness of God. God. Mitzvahs, I mean, in the practicality, you have to do the mitzvahs, but it would be... Um, and so every, each soul wants the, every part of the body to have that kind of loyalty and fealty to it, the animal soul of getting the human needs met and the godly soul, that everything should be about God. Now, for the body, in the terms of the arms and the legs, that's doing mitzvahs. In the mind, that's an awareness of God, right? In the heart, those are feelings of yearning for God and awe of God and respect for God, but whatever it is. And so they're in this conflict. A tzaddik is somebody who one king has won this battle and the body has become totally loyal, has complete fealty to the godly soul. But a benini is somebody, has that battle been won? No, because the Baini is a person who still feels attachment to, to other things, right? Even though maybe one is more important than all the others, namely God. And so that's what he says, that, in the, the, that, that there's a battle going on of what, what you're attached to, what draws you, what pulls you. 
And even though one ultimately is more important to you in your own experience, and so when it comes to making decisions, you're going to only do one thing and not the other, but you still feel that tension. That's the, that's the struggle he's describing, the main need. That's why he describes it as like two kings fighting over a small city. Um, and that, at the very least, that it should not vest itself in the organs of the body. At the very least, the godly soul has to make sure that the sense that God is the most important thing means that when I actually do anything and practice, it's not compromising my relationship with God, that the animal, the soul, is not taking over anything. And verily, it entails much effort and toil to wage constant war within it. And this is the vanity. That obviously sounds like something you need to put a lot of effort into, right? So what point is he making when it says serves God? We want to serving God. Serving is what? Is an activity. Right? It says there's someone who is doing something. Being a Bainani is something that you do. What are you doing by being a Bainani? Seemingly. You are maintaining that one thing is more important to you than other things. What happens if you stop trying to maintain that sense? What? What would happen if a baby were to stop ensuring that Hashem is the most important thing to them? Right, then, then right? Like if, 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 my, one of my sons wanted to arm wrestle me yesterday. Like, okay. Um, so, arm wrestle. And he's like really going in, you know. And um, he's really putting, and I, I said, let me know when you want this to end. So my arm is here, and he's pushing, and my arm's going a little back and forth, a little back and forth, a little back and forth there, because all I'm doing right now is just making sure my arm doesn't go back. And at some point, he's like, okay, really try. I'm like, then I just go without any effort. Boom. Because, you know, I'm much stronger than him. So you see there's two different states there. There's a state where all I'm doing is just ensuring that he does. Now, if I don't try, he'll push my arm down, right? But in the first st stage, all I'm doing is making sure that he doesn't push my arm down. Then there's a totally different thing where I actually use my full strength and what happens. It doesn't matter how hard he tries. The whole arm wrestle is over. Which state describes what the Bainani is like? The holding it up, right? The Bainani is like, like, you can't overpower me. You can't take control of things. The animal soul, the human needs cannot override my connection to God. But that has something that has to be maintained. The minute, now, what would have happened if I, if my son's trying to beat me in arm wrestling and I didn't put any effort in that first stage? I just, like, let my arm, and I didn't put any effort in. He would win, right? But once I knock his arm down, like, the game is, like, dope, right? I've done it. It's still number. Like, at that point, I've beaten him. So there's a way in which the bainani is something that is, has to be understood as an activity, as something that you are doing. Not doing in a physical activity, but there is a kind of mental and emotional activity that is always ongoing, which is, yeah, although we're going to see how much of it's really constant conflict and how much of it's more of a maintenance type of a thing. But isn't that now confused that already have, then technically you can't say I will never X. Oh, you can't. Because I, I am, I am.
I am maintaining that and I intend to keep maintaining that and I would never stop maintaining that. It's a theoretically what would happen if I didn't, okay? Let me give you an example of things that normal human people clearly need to maintain. Um, some of you may have encountered this later in life. Um, eventually people need to start paying their bills. Familiar with this phenomena? Right? At some point, at some point, the, the magic money that comes from your parents <laughs> stops coming, but food needs to be bought and rent or mortgage payments need to be made, electricity bills need to be paid, clothing needs to be purchased, travel needs to be purchased, and the money needs to come from somewhere. So you have to. Very good. What? Okay, that's what I said. Some of you may not encounter this, but it eventually happens. It eventually happens. So. So now, let us imagine that you have a person who is at the stage in life where no one's providing money to pay their own pay their bills, and let us imagine this person is relatively decently mature, and we're talking about a normal society with a normal economy. This person will have the money to pay their bills. Why? Because they work, right? Now, if they stop working, will they have the money to pay their bills? No. So when we say they have the, they have their money to pay their bills, that is a that is that is not a like they're they're in, they're wealthy with just this pile of cash that they can just draw on for the rest of their life. What it means is they are engaged in something that meets this need, and there is nothing that would ever cause that to stop. As long as we bracket that they're going to stay physically healthy, we bracket that the economy is still a normal economy, right? Right, no, it just proves an analogy. We bracket that they stay mature, assuming all those things are constant, the same way they went to work last month, they're gonna to go to work the next month, and they'll go to work two years later, five years later, 10 years later, right? Okay, now obviously in, in that analogy, there's a point which a person's physically not capable of working, something could happen to make change a person's maturity, and it could be the economy goes, and then they, they can't find work. But bracketing those things away, it, it's fair to say that they're always going to have the money to pay their bills, not because they have money just as much as they need, but because they are in a state of ensuring that that money is there, right? So a Bainani is a person who is like that. They're in a state of ensuring that this balance of power is maintained, that the godly soul is always able to provide that sense that my connection to Hashem is the most important thing. And they're doing that in a sustainable way, that the same way they're doing it now, They'll do it tomorrow and they'll do it the next day. And no matter what the circumstances are, they will continue to do it. That's the way they're approaching it. And so it really is saying they would never sin in the state that they're in. But it is something that has to be at the same time done, maintained. It's something they have to be involved in. It's not, it's not something that has been achieved. I want to just finish this thought, which and this is what we're gonna we're gonna talk about moving into, into next week's class. You do not, in some sense, become a Bainani the way you become a Tzaddik. Becoming is not the right way of thinking about being a Bainani. Being a Bainani is a, a way you approach life rather than something that you achieve. And this is like the key idea is going to say is that you can become a Tzaddik. You can live as a Bainani. Those are not, and, and so it's not just, not really. Because think about going the analogy of going to work, right? If I go to work and I and I make money, and you know, assuming of course that you stay capable, assuming that you, you're mature, assuming that the job is still available, right? 
You don't become wealthy that way. You don't become rich that way. But you do have the money to pay your bills. Why? Not because of what you've achieved, but because of what you are, what you're doing. And that's, in fact, how most people live their life, right, is they do work, the money comes in, and the money goes right back out to pay their bills with maybe a little bit left over for, you know, special things. In other words, there's, 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 it, 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 you're involved in a living process. In contrast, if you have someone who's just independently wealthy, independently wealthy people, like really, really independently wealthy, they just, they just have money. And like, it just changes everything about how you live life. Because there's no notion of like, well, you know, you know, I have to be making sure that I'm spending less than I'm earning because like input output, that's just not a factor. That's the bainani is somebody that there's always, whether it requires real work and conscious effort or whether or not, we'll get into this later, but there has to be this maintaining this sense of how important Hashem is to keep my other attachments in place and check. The tzaddik doesn't, doesn't engage in that. It's just things are a given. Life is about being connected to Hashem. That's all that matters. And they just live their life. They, not that they can, they would. They would. Now, if we, now the, thing is, the thing is like this. If the bainani is genuinely considering stopping the maintenance, then in some sense not really being a bainani at that point, right? But just the same way, we say like, a person who has a very good job and they're living a stable middle-class life, and if any one of those factors I mentioned were to change, they go from being a nice middle-class life to possibly being destitute, right? But the person who is independently wealthy, they can't meet in tank, they can be very immature, they can make stupid decisions, and they still stay in the upper levels of the economic strata because, it, because it's not built on their doing, it's built on what has been achieved, either previously in their own life, what they've inherited, and that's the end of it. So the key thing he's pointing out is that if you want to look, when it says one who is serving God versus a tzaddik, so he's saying serving God is an activity. It's not an achievement. It doesn't say a servant of God. It says one who is involved in this state, this, this process of maintaining a awareness of how Hashem and his connect, my connection is more important than other things. And as long as that is maintained, they would never sin. That's going to be very different than what it's odd, I guess. So these are not, these, these two things are very different. They're just answers to that first question. What's the difference between the righteous man and the wicked man versus the serving and not serving him? Well, righteous and serving are not the same thing. Serving is an activity. Righteous is something you, righteousness is something you achieve. And we're going to elaborate that next week. Because tomorrow we have questions and answers. Okay, I'm going to stop here. If there's any questions, I'll take them now. And then I have to get going to the... Um,